0: Welcome to a special edition of the Modern Husbands Podcast. This episode is a recording of our live event, Managing Money Talks in a Blended Family. The event guests were Ed Combs and Michael Van Cleve. Ed is the president of the Financial Therapy Association, a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified financial planner, and certified financial therapist. Ed is the founder of HealthyLoveAndMoney.com, an organization on a mission to help couples transform their relationship through learning, healing, and growing. Michael Van Cleve, CFP, is a doctoral student at Texas Tech University in the Personal Financial Planning program. He's a Certified Financial Behavior Specialist and Certified Employee Benefits Specialist with 20 years of experience in the financial services industry. Michael's academic research is focused on understanding the complex dynamics of money management within blended families. Michael and his wife Heather are in a blended family, which has fueled his passion for research on an ever-increasing population segment. Let's begin today's special edition of the Modern Husbands podcast with Michael sharing why he started the PhD program at Texas Tech, focusing on money and blended families.
1: The reason why, um, why I started uh, the PhD program at Texas Tech uh, was to focus on the research kind of in the field of financial psychology, uh, but specifically around blended families. Um, why they are different, you know, really what makes them so different from your, your more traditional or nuclear families, and how all the emotions and complexities involved in that really impact um, the way that we manage money and, and some of the issues and conflict that, that come up as a result of that.
2: So. Um, Ed, how, how does your own family dynamic shape your curiosity and your professional expertise and in financial intimacy and the four attachment styles?
3: Oh, man. Well, I appreciate that question. And I, I think it's been interesting, even just preparing for this this talk over the last few conversations, getting to know Michael was. Um, in my own work as a couples therapist, I didn't realize how much the blended family experience was impacting me because I didn't live in a blended family. My parents were married. Now, those of you that are familiar with genograms and family systems when you start drawing out the family tree and you look around at how many blended families and divorce and remarriages there are, there's actually quite a few all around me. And so as I emerged into young adulthood and and connected with my wife, it introduced me more formally to blended families. And as life has unfolded, I've seen blended families show up and recognize their impact in my own extended family and the impact that had on um, what I, I came to realize is my own family tree became less of a family tree and more of a family twig because of family disillusionment and relational loss. And and so the issue of blended families I think is really very um, significant. And and so much so today as I was interviewing someone for my podcast, she said, you know, I'm a millennial. And when I look at the statistics for millennials, the number of millennials that grew up in blended families or with the absence of one uh, parent is so significant. And we're really focused on having healthy relationships as millennials. And it just kind of blew me away. I was like, "Whoa, that's so cool. I'm so happy to hear that. Now she doesn't represent the whole millennial population, but uh, I think this topic is, is huge. And I'm embarrassed that I haven't looked through the lens of blended family research more fully, but uh, Michael, I'm so glad that you're doing that. So my uh, professional or clinical lens though, really is more around attachment theory and attachment bonding. So Uh, I don't know how familiar this audience is with attachment theory, but very shortly, it's a developmental model of how humans form and and maintain relationships. Dr. Olson, seeing you hold the baby always makes me think about attachment. Uh, But the attachment research is deep and wide and over eight decades long at this point. And so the research is pretty clear that we have one of four pattern ways of um, being bonded or in relationship with each other. And so that's that's a primary lens that I, I now use to make sense out of relationships and uh, what's going on there i'm sorry let me brian i didn't define so this is ed's definition of financial intimacy so sorry academics there is no academic literature on financial intimacy so i'm just making up a definition that works for me and you're free to use it as much as you like or throw it out but you know financial intimacy is the ability to be open honest and transparent and emotionally safe with your intimate partner around all financial topics and it's something that is not a static fixed unit, but something that can be deepened over the course of the intimate relationship. And it has to be fostered and curated. It doesn't just happen automatically. Um, so that's kind of my quick and dirty explanation of financial intimacy. And the four attachment styles are secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Some people don't love that language. Um, the secure person can balance their relationship with themselves. And with others and feel comfortable in the relationship, the anxious person is often more focused on the other person, less aware of some of their own needs They tend to be a little more on the clingy side of things. The avoidantly attached individual is more of your standoffish. I'm going to do me, you do you, I'll meet my own emotional needs. And the disorganized classification kind of has both of those. All of that can be understood in the context of the family developmental experience or large portions of, of that patterning can be understood when we really understand our client stories. So attachment patterns are adaptive to the caregiving environment that we were raised in.
2: So Michael, can can you define uh, for us just the various types of ver- blended families just so the audience has a reference point for today's conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Brian can actually share my screen real quick. I think sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, right?
2: Let's see. I want to make sure you you should have. Yep. Can
1: y'all see that on the big side?
2: Yes, you're good.
1: Okay, cool. So like I said, sometimes a picture's worth a thousand words. So this is actually my blended family. And I'm, I'm going to kind of compare nuclear and blended families and, and define the different types uh, to help illustrate it. But this picture is from 2016. And I love to throw this out there because it's the only picture I have of all of us together. And some of you are like, "What?" Well, the reason for that is is we've never all lived together. Um, so I've got two of the children, and Heather, my wife, my beautiful bride there on the right, she has two of the children, and the two older ones um, don't live with us. Uh, one is 25 now; the other's 21 and married. Uh, and so, really, just the the younger two they go back and forth between their other parents and us every week. But this is an example of what we would call a complex blended family. And I'll define that a little bit more here in just a moment, because we both came into the relationship with children from a previous marriage. Um, before I go into blended families more that I think it helps to just define the difference. So a nuclear family is the term that's used or traditional family is where you have, you know, two spouses that come together in um, in they both have children. So they share biological children with one another, probably have a couple of fur babies over on the side as well. Right. Um, And that's just a very simple schematic to show a blended or, or a nuclear family. When we look at blended families, we're talking about one or more spouses having children from previous relationships in those previous relationships. They could have ended in divorce Um, someone could have passed away. There are a number of different things, right. That could have happened. Um, they may not have been previously married, but had, had children with a partner and they're bringing those children, um, into this, this new relationship. So in a very simple blended family schematic, you would have, you know, two people get married and only one of those spouses, uh, would bring children in from a prior marriage. So here we're going to use an example of John and Jane, Jane and Ryan get divorced, Uh, Larry is Jane's son and Larry becomes John's stepson, right? So that's a a very simple blended family schematic, uh, complex blended family. You're going to have both spouses come in with children. So in this example, John and Jane both got previously divorced and they both brought one child in this example, it could be more than one child into the relationship. So by doing that, Luke, who is John's son, becomes Jane's stepson. Luke becomes Larry's step-sibling. And then Larry, again, is is John's stepchild, right? But they still have, Luke and John still have their other parents in separate households. And it's not uncommon for the kids to share time between the two households. It could be uh, every other weekend. It could be 50-50. It could be a number of different combinations. But all that back and forth just kind of adds to the complexities. Then we have the please help me blended family <laughs> schematic, which is where now one of the exes gets remarried. And so in this example, Rachel has gone off, gotten remarried. Um, so now Luke not only has Jane as his stepmom and dad as his or John as his dad, obviously, and, and Rachel's his mother, but he now has a a new stepfather. Um, as well or 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 another stepmom for that matter, uh, in the other household. And it just continues to get more fun uh, and more complex when you look at blended families um, because now in this example, um, Ryan, who's Jane's ex, has another child. Now Ryan may or may not have gotten remarried as well, but now Larry has not only a step sibling in Luke, but another step sibling over in the other household, right? And the reason it's important to see all of this is because when decisions are being made, uh, financial or not, the more people that get involved, the more chaotic and complex it can become. And obviously the more emotions and, and the more opportunity for conflict that can take place. And then just to keep things really fun, we have the, what were we thinking blended family schematic, which is where now... Uh, John and Jane, not only is all this other stuff going on, but they've decided to have a year's mind and hours. They've had a shared child together, uh, which is little Susie Q that adds to the mix. And oh, by the way, uh, when Jane got divorced from Ryan, she was the one thing that she was most excited about is that she wasn't going to have to deal with Ryan's dad anymore. So she thought she was wrong because Ryan's dad is still Larry's grandfather. He's still causing issues. He's still in the mix. So the thing about blended families is if there are exes and they're involved and there's those ex in-laws they're going to continue to put their hand in the pot. And so you're not only marrying your spouse in a lot of situations, you're kind of marrying their ex and all of their family too, (laughs) because you end up having to deal with a lot of, a lot of the chaos and things that they have going on. So Wanted to kind of share those pictures as we define what is a blended family because it can take on several different forms. But the more folks involved, just the more chaotic and complex that that can become.
2: Before we dive in, like a little bit uh, more deeply into kind of how that schematic kind of manifests into money decisions um, and how some sort of like simple financial choice that a nuclear family would take for granted. Becomes very complex. Um, so before we dive into that, can you share um, just a little bit what you can about your research thus far on money and blended families? Yeah, I can. I
1: can share a little bit on that. So when we think about money and blended families, um, there are quite a few things that that can come up. Um, one of the the things that's that's challenging or unique, I guess, is when compared to nuclear families, blended families tend to manage their finances separately more often um, or take more of what you would call a three bucket approach. And a three bucket basically is is kind of a yours, mine and ours, like with the children as well, right? So you would have a joint account potentially to manage uh, expenses like the mortgage utilities, things like that. Um, But then separate accounts... Um, that often are used for your own children's expenses, um, and uh you know, maybe miscellaneous spending on the kids, things like that, because in some situations the the step parent doesn't want to take on the financial support of their stepchildren. We see that happening. And so to avoid the conflict, these families will take on three bucket approaches. Um, the other thing is blended families can in a lot of situations. Uh, have more financial stress um, because you have obligations like alimony and child support, potentially, you could be the receiving household on that. But if you're the paying household, you know, those are additional expenses. um, And that can become quite costly. Um, I mean, I I like to be very transparent when I talk about this, because I think personal stories can help, help relate to things. But child support was a source of conflict. Uh, in my marriage, when when Heather and I got married, she knew I paid child support, uh, and she knew how much. Um, but once we came together and we started, we tried to do joint finances initially, completely across the board. We've since gone to a three bucket approach, but she felt like she was paying the child support too, even even though I was, um, because that was money out of our household. Um, so things like alimony and child support can be real sources of tension there, but I think. You know, things that are often very simple in a nuclear family, I'll, I'll use an example. Say that you've got a couple of teenagers in the house and they're at an age now where you feel comfortable giving them a cell phone. Well, when you give those children a cell phone, instead of it just being a decision between you and your spouse, and you could maybe still get away with doing it that way, you're going to have to involve your exes, their parents, their parents. You know, if you're if you're truly trying to co-parent because you want to make sure they're okay with them having a cell phone, they may or may not be, which can cause conflict. Uh, There may want to be you may want to have a discussion around sharing the cost of the ongoing cell phone bill. So, are they going to be willing to pay a portion or half of that? Maybe. Um, So, you've got to get their buy in on that. Um, If they have if there are step siblings in the other households, so there's other children, then you know, children, especially when they're younger, that's not fair, right? Well, sorry, newsflash, nothing is fair in a blended family. <laughs> but, you know, they may start asking for a cell phone too. And then and that puts a burden again on the other household. And so just simple things like that, a pair of shoes, even like who's going to pay for it, you know, um, things can just get more complicated that would normally be very, very simple.
2: When when I listened to Michael's presentation at the, at the FTA conference, Um, it was really the first time I had thought through just the ripple effects of just a simple singular decision, like getting a cell phone. And, you know, up until that point, you know, my exposure to managing money in a marriage was obviously my own personal experience, my lived experience, which, um, from the outset, it wasn't because we were, you know, informed to do so or that we were reading research. We just did what our parents did and we combined our finances. That's how we just naturally did things. Um, So it was an accidental success. So uh, what I learned over time was that there are a number of ways in which people manage money. And and as Michael brought up, yours, mine, and ours, which is that that three-bucket approach where one approach is for joint expenses, and then you each have your own account for personal expenses, whatever they may be. That, that is also something that, that is common. And, you know, when you read about, you know, why people do this, it, it makes sense, right? Because personal finance is more personal in finance. Well, now you throw in somebody else that you have to have a relationship with that has to do with money. Now it becomes even more complex. So. The reason why, as I'm sitting there, I thought, oh, my goodness, we have to make sure that, you know, folks, whether it's the academic world, the education world, um, CFPBs, whomever it may be, are exposed to this information, not only Michael's academic research, but how to approach the conversations in a clinical way, as Ed's going to discuss, um, is because it's important that we don't make, like, we don't assume that we understand exactly what each couple's going through. And when I saw that schematic, the only thing I could think was that um, is that I would have to approach every conversation with absolute humility, that there's no way that any of us could possibly understand kind of the depths of their relationships and how that relationship is connected with money. Um, So Joe, kind of as an example, you know, Michael is going to give us just a couple scenarios one at a time that would be particularly challenging for blended families to marriage. And then as a follow-up, Ed is going to share uh, an approach about how it is that you can go about having that uh, conversation in a thoughtful way. Um, so, Michael, you want to kick it off with just one example scenario that uh, would be common, that would be particularly difficult to manage.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, one one example um, that could be difficult is when you – when you think about a nuclear family, right? The the two spouses have had an opportunity to build a relationship first, and even if it's a quick pregnancy, they've still got nine months before the baby comes along. So they've they've had time to build some relationship, spend time together, build that bond, and maybe a, you know a, at least a somewhat strong foundation with each other going into the relationship. In a blended family, you've got children coming in first, and so the the relationship and the bond between the parent and their biological child is is likely stronger, right? Especially in the beginning. And as a result of that, that can lead to some issues. And so one example that really comes up, and this is part of the research that we're looking at is in the area of what's called financial infidelity, Um, which like sexual infidelity is, is being unfaithful to your spouse, but in this case in the area of finances. So it's secrecy and dishonesty around money, right? And the reason that this can bubble up and it can come happen in nuclear families obviously as well, but within the blended family is that because of the bond and the traditions um, that have been in place between the parent and the biological child, there's likely things that they were doing prior to the marriage. So I'll give you a a real example using my family again. Um, My daughter, Caitlin, she's 15 now. Yay. 15 year old teenage girl, super fun. Uh, And her love language is gifts. And so I know that about her. Um, And so as a, as a parent who doesn't have her all the time, I I engage in what I call guilt spending. Um, and that is to try to make up for some of that lost time. I try to shower her with, with gifts as much as I can. Well, that can cause issues, right? And so one of those issues that comes up is, well, if you're going to spend that on Caitlin, then we need to spend that on Tyler, but I don't want to spend that on Tyler because I don't have the same bond, <laughs> Disneyland ads, right? I don't have the same bond, uh, or history with Tyler that I do with Caitlin. And there's something called kin selection theory that helps explain all that, just basically looks at genetic relatedness and, and some of the behaviors that are associated with that. But there's some genetic as well as emotional reasons why a parent wants to invest more in their own children than their stepchildren. Um, but uh, but because of that, um, we had conflict in the beginning about spending on children, another reason why we went to a three bucket approach. Um, and so, I had I, I didn't do it but there was a lot of temptation there to go and take Caitlin out to do things go to the mall get her nails done spend money and just say hey don't tell Heather because um, I don't want to have that fight right well that's not only is that financial infidelity if I do that but now I'm involving my child um in really what's an adult matter in having inappropriate conversations about money and just things like that with her. And that's called financial incest or financial enmeshment. Not a good thing, but that's the scenario I would throw out is, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to take Caitlin and I'm going to do these things. I'm going to shower her with gifts. I'm going to keep spending money. We had that tradition. I stopped doing it. She's going to think I don't love her. She's going to resent Heather, but I'm going to tell her, Hey, don't tell Heather because I don't want to have the fights and the arguments. And I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to spend that much on Tyler.
2: So. Okay. So now before, before Ed addresses how Michael should approach that conversation with, let's start with, with Heather. Um, I think it's important that we recognize that we're in this nice, neat, relaxed, confined setting on Zoom where we're having a rational conversation. But when we make decisions, we often make irrational decisions based on irrational circumstances, or we make irrational decisions because we're flooded with emotion. And that's called the empathy gap, right? Where we're, we fail to recognize the how we're going to feel at the moment where we actually have to make a choice. So it might sound simple to construct some sort of plan that looks great on paper that where there's a mutual agreement with your ex-spouse, but carrying that plan out um, when your 15-year-old who's you really want, you know, that love for her. You feel whatever it may be. You feel like that you need to give her a gift, but you don't want to create the chaos that'll result. That's the moment where it's like, okay, now this is this is hard. And never mind the fact that Michael probably works sixty hours a week. His wife probably works sixty hours a week. His daughter's fifteen, flooding through emotions. She's really busy, and now we need to have a conversation. So, with that as kind of context, um, Ed, no pressure but how is it that you can approach that conversation, uh, with, with Michael's daughter?
3: Um, well, yeah. Uh, thanks Christian. Absolutely. I, I don my old, actually this is, this is a fun group. I'm going to show you how I fix this guy here. I put on my firefighter helmet, (laughs) I bring out the hose and I douse him with a bunch of water. No. Um, so, what you guys don't know is i was a, I'm a former firefighter. I just couldn't resist this is a fun, close group. Um, and yeah, yeah, this is this is the reality though, of couples and family therapy world is you you have all these layers. And here's kind of the bind is as a professional therapist, you have the education and knowledge about all these layers that your clients don't often have access to or exposure to all this information. And it's part of why they're loggerhead in conflict because they're just operating out of what they saw their families do and whatever other assumptions they have. So, you know, I'm coming in in this mindset that this is a long haul journey, that this is not a one, one, one event, one hour meeting, and we've got it all buttoned up. Now that doesn't mean the couple wouldn't love that to happen. Right. Michael, you'd love to come in, you and Heather come in and see me for an hour. And, we, you know, I rub my hands some mag- magic uh, fairy dust on top of you guys, and voila! You come up with your three bucket solution.
1: I want my money back, Ed. If it's not fixed,
3: in <laughs> one, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I don't blame you, man. I don't blame you. But really, what happens is from the beginning when I'm working with any of my clients, and this is the way that I practice, is we're starting out with gathering the bigger family story and so what i'm doing is i'm drawing a family tree on the on a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and starting to map all the relationships so much like michael started to show that complexity and what happens when uh, clients get to see their family tree laid out is all of a sudden it just opens up that sense of like yeah like i knew it was complicated but yeah i really get it now and so that's one of the very first activities that we're doing is I'm also trying to set up that there are probably bigger generational patterns around the ways that we relate to each other financially that existed long before the two of them ever came together. And so, because what I also know is there's the financial hurt and pain between the ex-spouses that are still coloring the way that they see each other. They're not seeing each other with clear, fresh lenses. They've been in intimate relationships. They know what an intimate partner can do or not do financially. And whatever they saw that didn't work so well, they're bringing that to the table. So one of those psychological words that we like to use is we've got to really make sure that they're psychologically able to differentiate their current partner from their past partner in the way that they function. And so we're gonna—I start asking lots of detailed questions about what they've seen in the past from a non-judgmental standpoint. But we're just trying to observe. We're trying to see other repeating patterns here that we're projecting onto the partner or did we marry someone that has similar patterns? And where did
2: the, where does that come from? I, so, so basically you have a spouse who could have experienced some sort of financial trauma because of the past their previous marriage, right. because of financial infidelity. Now they're walking into a new marriage and so it's not as simple as, let's just look at this situation within a box. Let's right. also take into consideration that there could be some really complicated financial trauma that exists from the prior marriage. Is that what, is, did I?
3: Yes. Did I... Yes, that's right. And and okay. let's, if we do that, but then we take it back a generation and say, what happened in your past families, especially, you know, blended families there, what happened there financially? How did that set expectations and then rules? So there's a lot of unpacking and opening up. So that's part of it. But, you know, what I also am trying to do is test to see the, sorry, I have the chat going. I should close it back down because I'm just watching it um, go by is one of the favorite things that I like to do when I'm early working with couples is even if they're in the Zoom space, even if they're not in the same physical space, I have them try looking at each other. And seeing if they can make eye contact. And this is serving a couple of big purposes. But one is I'm trying to reconnect the fact that you're actually connected to another human. Because, man, we can really start thinking all kinds of nasty things in our head about the other person. And lose the fact that we're in relationship with this other human that has intrinsic worth and value. No matter what they've done. So I want to test that and see. because. Part of attachment and bonding is also making and being able to uh, connect through eye contact. So, I'm testing to see can they make eye contact? Can they see each other and actually hold gaze for a little bit? And when they've been in conflict for a while, oftentimes they haven't had any eye gaze in a long time. So, those are a couple of things that I'm I'm kind of leading with.
2: So, if let's say. You're the everyday guy and you want to walk in, you want a quick answer. So I'm imagining like I'm hanging out with my high school buddies and they're going to look at me and they're just going to be like, dude, I'm just going to lie about it. Uh, She's my ex-wife. I don't want to deal with it. I don't have the time, the energy. And um, I'm going to get my daughter on my side by just paying for the cell phone. Like what? Okay, so how am I supposed to respond to my buddy who, frankly, that is a pretty rational and, and selfish response um what do i what do i say to him
3: oh yeah that's a i love that question hmm what do you do Yeah, you know, I, I think the everyday guy i mean is like stop being a knucklehead um, yeah but that's not very helpful is it no no i think you know in a, a little more pragmatic way if you are able to muster empathy is just acknowledge like, Hey man, I look, look, I get it. You don't want to piss off your wife. You don't want to piss off your daughter. That's a tough spot. It feels like it might be easier to just get her the cell phone and you win for the day. Yeah. But then you get to, you know, and this is knowing that the guy, the buddy that you're talking to is like, do you want to win the battle and lose the war?
2: Okay. And you let's just put that now, question. That, Cause Michael would never only pursue his own self-interest, but let's assume that there are people out there who, like my buddy, would pursue only his self-interest um, and and have kind of a narrow view on what the ripple effects could potentially be. So walk us through what those ripple effects could potentially look at, look like on down the road. I was gonna say, real quick, Ed, they're probably going to be part of that
1: uh, ever-increasing number and statistic we've all seen where the divorce rate gets even higher with each additional marriage, right?
3: Yeah. yeah. Marriage, you yeah. know. Divorce is it can be a major wake up call to personal growth and development, and for some people, it's it just slides them further into their own personal hole.
2: How so? Through modeling? I mean, is this finance? Is are you modeling the kind of behavior that is um, they're going to look at and think, well, I can I can perhaps be deceptive with my future spouse? Um, is that a potential consequence to this? You're talking about with your children? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, and I'll let Ed speak to that a little bit more, but I, I just wanted to throw in, you wouldn't, it, I haven't looked at exact research on this, but I would imagine it is common. You wouldn't believe the amount of guilt um, a person can feel uh, because at least I, I very much believe that children are the true victims of conflict and a relationship and divorce and things of that nature. Uh, and actions speak louder than words. Um, so as they're witnessing all those things, absolutely. And and there is research to show that uh, stepchildren tend to struggle more. They have lower levels of education. They struggle more financially, and so forth. Um, and there's obviously lots of factors that can go into that. But yeah, I mean that that's one of the things I internally struggle with. In and, and and that's why I was. I did take divorce as an opportunity for personal growth going into the relationship with Heather is let's model as best we can, what love and a partnership and a true relationship and open communication should really look like not screaming and fighting and all these other things. Right. Uh, because to some degree the damage is done, but how can we try to model the best things going forward?
2: So, so you, you really, it's really not a money issue. It's more of a,
1: it's everything issue. Yeah. Okay. Money's part of it. But
2: yeah. So I and I know you I'm, hopefully you're not going to hate me for this because um, I did not tell you I was going to ask you this question, but something just occurred to me. I think you were talking about this to a certain degree in in your presentation. Um, but there's a scenario that's really stuck with me that I could not wrap my mind around how I would work through. So let's say that you you get remarried. Right. So you and your wife have have are now married and you both were divorced before, right? So you're now married and you each bring your own child into that new marriage. So you each have um, a a bonus child. Now, for for whatever reason, your value sets are a little bit different, right? Nobody's are perfectly aligned. And so something has occurred in your life where you probably value education even more than, than the everyday person. And so, you have scraped and scraped and staged and done everything you can to make sure that your child is going to go to for, you think private schools better. They're, they're in private school and you're going to keep them there and you're going to pay for your child's college. Your ex-wife can't afford to pay for that. So it's on you. Your wife comes in to the marriage with a child. She cannot afford to pay for private school or college for her child. She can't afford it. Her ex-husband can't afford it either. So you're left with a choice. Either your blood child gets a private education and goes to college and it's paid for, and your bonus child goes to a different school and they have to pay for college themselves, or you don't have enough money to pay for both, you decide that your bloodline child is going to go to public school and, and college is pretty much on your child's own. And then the bonus child situation doesn't change. Those are your choices. So Michael, like how, and that feels like a very real choice for a lot of families. So Michael, how would you handle that? And then Ed, how would you approach that?
1: And if if you're a person who believes, pray, because (laughs) it is, it, it really is messy. And, you know, I know you were throwing that as kind of a scenario, but, you know, we really did have some conflict around that because I had some um 529 plans set up for the kids. I'm also a Texas veteran, so I have what's called the Hazelwood Act. So if they go to school in Texas, there's a certain number of hours of tuition that would be waived. And uh my dad, who's on the call. Hi dad, didn't know he was gonna join, but see him on here, appreciate the support. Um he uh he also has five twenty-nine set up uh, for the kids on my side. And so Heather really felt like, um, what about my kids? You know, And I was like, well, I can't, I can't penalize or punish my children and say, hey, you're going to have to take out loans now or whatever to pay for it um, because you don't have money set aside for them. But in our situation, it kind of goes both ways because her ex-husband can afford to pay for half and we cover half, whereas my ex-wife can't afford to pay for anything. Now, because of that, and because she's primary custodian, uh, my son who's in college gets quite a bit in uh, Pell Grants um, because when you do your FAFSA, it's based on, um, you know, the the parent who claims you. Um, and so, uh, so there's kind of some give and take on both sides there because my kid's college is either going to have to be covered by the grants, my Hazelwood or what I have in the 529s. Um, whereas her ex again is going to pay for half that. What I wish had happened when you say, well, how do you handle that? I mean, we, we've worked through it with just a lot of communication, understanding each other's situations uh, and where we're coming from. We actually did some role play because uh, through the, re- through the research uh, for those of y'all that know Dr. Brad Klantz, he and I created a, a role play model for couples in a blended family paper that we published And so we did some of that role play to see, does this really work? Or is it all kind of academic and theoretical, you know? And uh, it did help us to have some really good conversations. If we started to get heated, we paused. We took a break and we came back even the next day, sometimes before we would come back to it. But just really understanding where the other person was coming from. So like, she felt like I cared more about my children than hers. And these didn't matter. And I kind of felt like, well, I had this already. Like you're asking me to make my children suffer for yours, you know, and so forth. And we just had to kind of see eye to eye where each person was coming from. What I wish we had done um, was talk more about this stuff before we got married. And here's where things get complicated again on the blended family side. So we did, we actually did some like premarital counseling and all that, but it was set up for traditional families And we've noticed this too, when you talk to marriage counselors or you go to an estate planning attorney, because estate planning is super complex or can be with blended families. If they don't understand blended families, then they just don't get it. And so the type of advice and guidance they're giving is great maybe for a traditional family, but doesn't really always work for blended families. And so we we talked about things and being a financial planner, you know, we look at each other's credit reports and we talked about stuff like that, but we didn't think to talk about kids college funding and things like that. and You know, that type of stuff coming into it. Maybe I should have shame on me, but when you look at some of the research that's out there and you alluded to this earlier, and sadly, there's just not a ton of data and information out there on blended families and, and, and finances and, Uh, There's a little more on the psychology side of the house. Um, But there was a a big survey done uh, back in 2010, National Survey of Remarried Couples. And the vast majority of these couples did not talk about finances before they got married at all. Uh, And the majority do not have a plan for how they're going to manage their finances going forward. Um, (laughs) And as you can imagine, imagine, you know, that that has a pretty big impact. They also looked at happy versus unhappy couples and obviously the happy couples, they do agree on how to spend their money. Like 80% of happy couples agree on how to spend money. Whereas only 26% of unhappy couples do, right? It's a pretty, pretty big difference, um, you know, in, in what you see from that. I was trying to find the exact number. I think it was, it was North of 70%. Um, don't talk about finances before getting married. So, um, a lot of that, if you talked about that stuff and thought about it beforehand, it would solve a lot of issues. But once you're in it, you're kind of in it. So, really, it's all about open communication to oversimplify. But Ed, what would you say, man? How would you how would you help clients with that type of situation?
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, and it is an oversimplification, right? But I think it it's there's a lot of moving pieces. But I do think that. Helping normalize for all couples, there's no way you can anticipate all the financial conversations you need to have on the front end. And so any guilt that you have about like, man, we should have addressed this or should have addressed that is just like, to some extent, until you really have to face that decision, it's going to be hard to know. Otherwise, it's hypothetical. And, And I think the other thing is really more about helping the couple become who they are to each other, how they see themselves. And really being able to see themselves as partners working together and that they have the capacity to have these difficult conversations and to sometimes sit with the ambiguity of not knowing how to move through it for a little bit of time. Mm. But also trusting that they have the creativity within them to come up with a solution that actually works for best for both of them. And this is where, you know, I think for me, the lens of therapy is so helpful is I don't come in with a preconceived solution of this is the way blended family should manage money because, you know, even if it's like, yeah, three bucket method is a pretty good method. Well, who's contributing how much into the, into the shared bucket and what does that mean? And so the more important role in the therapeutic process is to create a safe space for them to come to the table to openly reflect on that and to look at their values, what do they want to contribute, what feels like fairness and equity to them, and being able to just hold that space for them to really work through it. And for them to know that, like, I'm not in the business of deciding who's more right or wrong. I'm in the business of helping both people grow and understand. And I do think it's an opportunity to grow in their moral development as well. You know, there's whole bodies of of literature on moral development and stages of moral development and moral reasoning. And so this is a great opportunity to work through how do we morally work through these different issues how do we mature as an individual? How do we grow into wisdom given this conflict? So these conflicts are an opp- huge opportunity for growth and development.
2: We, we had on recently, and the podcast will be released on Thursday, um, Lori Israel. So she wrote, I don't know if you can see oh, it. Yeah. The Jenner. Yeah. And, um, you know, what? what is serendipitous to today's conversation is that um she she brought up the fact that in first marriages particularly when people are young that it is it is exceptionally rare where a prenup would be necessary or or appropriate and um she she's actually pretty if you were to summarize it pretty anti-prenup um that can be she believes um counterproductive towards a a couple working together however she did say that uh if there is a bland family and um there are second marriages that if the process itself is led by a mediator, um, so think of somebody who is skilled in understanding the complexities of this circumstance um, and understand how to be able to work through it, rather than perhaps just a strictly an attorney who's responsible for just protecting the assets of the individual they represent. She said that that mediator can hopefully help guide the kinds of conversations that Michael and Ed are talking about. And that going into the marriage, there is an understanding of what to do with the money. And and you don't have to get the prenup, even though you hired a mediator. Um, It just you could discover during the process that it would be appropriate because it would help the marriage.
0: Thanks to those who attended our special event, and especially to Ed and Michael for sharing their wisdom. Join your fellow Modern Husbands and have links to our podcasts, articles, resources, and free event invitations such as this one sent to your inbox every couple of weeks by subscribing to our newsletter at ModernHusbands.com. Don't forget to click subscribe wherever you download your podcast. give us a rating, and share the Modern Husbands podcast with others. Doing so goes a long way in growing our reach. Until next time, be well.